0: Welcome to News in Context, I'm Gina Balleria. In this episode, we explore the journalistic norms that have driven the profession, and why evolving those norms could lead to stronger coverage of the stories that affect us. This includes using more inclusive language, seeking sources outside the realm of official authorities, and striving for newsroom diversity. My guest is Dr. Steve bien Assistant Professor of Journalism at Northern Kentucky University, and Adjunct Instructor at the Poynter Institute. love to start with what's going on, you know, over the past few days and week, how the media has been using words and phrases. I guess we can talk about its evolution over the past four years. And and then also I'm curious about over the past week.
1: It's an adjustment. President Trump, to say the least, is a very unconventional person if you put him in the realm of politics. As an entertainer, this rhetoric or discourse would be considered somewhat normal But now you put them in the realm of politics, I think this seems to be out of place. A lot of the issues, I I think, come from journalistic norms and now modern practice. So what I mean by journalistic norms is almost a default approach that we take to accepting as unquestioned truth when an authority figure, so it could be a politician, it could be law enforcement. Say something, then it happened.
0: Yes, we prioritize authorities or official sources because there's a pathway to them. And we've infused these voices with trust, but we then miss the voices of non-official sources who may also have valid and important perspectives.
1: Things like police briefs. There used to be little 150-word stories. So-and-so was arrested on charges of stealing X, Y, and Z well, so-and-so never got to speak for themselves. So-and-so's lawyer never was quoted. Um, In the US, you're seeing a lot of newsrooms remove mugshots or or stop the practice because this is having long-term harm, some people's, right? Especially if you've never been convicted, right? So here you are, oh, so-and-so stole chickens or was accused of seeing chickens and then never convicted.
0: Right, but that mugshot lives on, yeah. The
1: mugshot lives on. And bringing this to President Trump it's the president. So this is an office where what is said in, in, in the speech of the presidency gets taken very seriously, and gets to hold a lot of weight. And now when you have someone who might have a very whimsical way of speaking, where perhaps the moment that he's in dictates exactly what he says and what he means, it really hurts that journalistic practice. So the media is trying to reconcile this. Two more things on this issue that I think are very important. One is 24-hour media. So 24-hour media needs to keep producing content. And here's a person who's going to be on Twitter more often than I've seen Instagram influencers and and other people who make a full-time job on social media he's out there always producing content. So I think he's also becoming over amplified because there's this media landscape. I think the other part is connected to my first uh, comment is this idea of elite theory um, within journalism that we tend to take our news cues and frames, from those who have power, whether they're business leaders, politicians, uh, ambassadors, uh, high-ranking government officials. What they say gets to set a lot of the agenda. I love looking at this in the classroom setting. We were looking at a, a video about student debt, and they had some kind of Wall Street stock trader or something. And my students Northern Kentucky has a lot of working class students, Northern Kentucky University, where I teach. And they're looking at this like, huh? This person makes like, how much money? And they're telling me about, oh, you just said to save money for three years. And you begin to see this kind of default to the powerful, and this happens a lot in media, where, well, he's the president said something, so we have to report on it. Well, why? It's newsworthy. Why?
0: Yes. And as we see more local news deserts with local news outlets closing or having resources cut, that national content is in part being used to fill that gap.
1: There is an overrepresentation in the news of the Beltway, as if the Beltway matters to people outside of the Beltway. Most people I talk to, and I've worked in Los Angeles, in journalism... I've taught in Louisiana at LSU and now teach in other Kentucky. They're not sitting around like, man, we really care what Fox News said today. We really care what MSNBCs did. But if you look at these shows, it's just amplifying the beltway. And so I think there's an overrepresentation of the president or these types of political issues. In my introductory newswriting class, the students were surprised to see horse race journalism. They're like, oh, that's what I see. And then they're reading um, journalism resource has a a great summation of the effects of horse race journalism, which are all the effects we're suffering from now. And so the students are like, yeah, no one's talking about real issues. No one's talking about what's happening to me. It's like, what is this projection? And what did white evangelicals do? And What is the Latino vote? And then you see, oh, no, there's no such thing as the Latino vote. And you're not talking about, I have $400 in my bank account, and now COVID came. What am I going to do? Now I have no job, right? What do I do when I can't afford a test? What can I do when I can't work from home? I don't have broadband. You're whipping up the same folks to talk about issues without any specificity.
0: You made a, a many amazing points, but the w- the couple that I want to touch on right this second are, one, at the beginning of our talk, you said, our president doesn't talk like a politician, but he talks like an entertainer. And at the same time, the news media over the past several years, because I think in the Beltway and in the mainstream dominant life we have our problems but no one in that realm is really threatened we've lulled ourselves as a society into this space where news has become part of the entertainment cycle and of course cable news has become a part of that and i think trump really did catch everybody off guard because he was talking like an entertainer oh cool this is entertainment oh wow wait he's doing a lot of things that are that are breaking our norms of the beltway and uh, and i've been seeing a lot of quotes about well why don't we just humor him in this moment but I think it's interesting that journalism has been trying to find its way ever since it sort of had a, a... It did have a realization. I think the industry had a realization early on in the presidency of the last four years. But they haven't been able to find their footing. They've had moments like fact-checking in the lower thirds, pulling away from his speech last Thursday because he is, in essence, no longer the authority, right? The new authority has been elected. So I think there's there's been moments, but I think overall our industry is still trying to find its way.
1: And I, I think this is a good point uh, to say, there are two industries. When I'm looking at some of the salaries of the folks on cable TV and I'm like, so there's that side of things. And then there is the day-to-day, the 25, to $30,000 a year, and there are folks making a lot less. That is the journalistic norm, right? People are fooling with, President Trump or what's going on in the Beltway, you're covering city council, um, the local parades. I remember my first uh, freelance journalism gigs for our weekly county paper and taking photos of parades and, oh, the town got new police dogs. Take photos of police dogs. And that's the real journalism. So I think there's what, like 40,000 people work as journalists or something like that. So probably 38,000 people work like this and you got 2,000. So out of that 2,000, you probably got like 100 who are getting banked. And I'm not out to demonize people getting paid. I respect people getting paid. Good, good for you. So what's happening is those folks, I think, blurred a line between entertainment and news. And you see a lot of the public not able to tell the difference between a news commentator, and a journalist. When Anderson Cooper compared President Trump to some kind of obese turtle or some such thing, you can't be on 60 Minutes saying you do serious work and then you're calling someone an obese turtle. Like, you, this doesn't work.
0: Absolutely. There has to be a clearer delineation between news, opinion, and other forms of content. Otherwise, the audience is unable to differentiate, and that's a large part how we got here to this point of mistrust and polarization
1: politics stole everything from sports so if you watch um I show this in my um sports class and in my news diversity class the 2016 primaries if you watch a CNN hype video it looks like sports you got this dramatic music and these quick cuts and you see the language so and so spars with somebody i'm like did not sparring boxers spar okay i'll take you down the wild card gym down in la down Hollywood and I'll show you some people sparring, right? This isn't sparring. These is people spouting often a bunch of platitudes, and you know, I'm being nice, with a predetermined opinion, or seemingly a predetermined opinion, right? It's not sparring, it's just like saying things. And that is being displayed to the public as what journalism is. And I love our business, but it's a very mundane business, a bunch of folks who do a job who live often in some form of anonymity. and they're catching a lot of flack for things. That's a lot of uh, female journalists, uh, journalists of color and especially female journalists of color because they're they're getting a lot of hate on social media for doing their jobs and they're not get, catching a lot of the money, right? you got a lot of other folks getting a lot of money and whipping people up into a frenzy. And then you see folks who aren't making a ton of money, catching a lot of flack for it. When you see these folks in the beltway or on TV talking about these things over and over, you're kind of reaping what you sow, right? And then all of a sudden you have someone who has no, let's call it no respect or no tradition in the norms that you expect the people to follow, this is going to run amok, and it's run amok for five years.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it harms society. You know, it's it's it harms society that journalism has either lost its way or di- dived even more into this space, you know? That's my biggest concern. You're absolutely right. And my concern is that we are not serving the public, which is what we're supposed to be
1: doing. There's great work being done, but I think when we're looking at—and again, I'm separating local and regional— from cable tv and i'm not out to kick the cable folks and i'm not out to kick the the national folks or the folks who cover politics all day but when your coverage looks like what's a good strategy for so and so and what's the political expedient way to do something or you hire a bunch of political commentators and not more journalists I need more. I need more about how we're losing medical folks, um, not just to COVID deaths, but they are being laid off. How can we say in the country we have a shortage of medical professionals and we're like, yeah, we're going to lay off this person? How many stories are being done?
0: Local news is hurting more than ever, right? Because corporations and hedge funds have come in and they've bought up these local outlets and not they have not invested or reinvested in them. They are siphoning out any profits or any, you know, property and trying to reap a profit and then leaving those outlets decimated. So local news was actually where we would get all the stories you're talking about.
1: What's happening is local news is being commingled with something else. There's rhetoric about hating other people and rhetoric about demonizing other people. Folks can respectfully disagree as to what should be done for COVID stimulus or what should be done in terms of what is the ideal education landscape. You can have very thoughtful folks who disagree what is occurring, I think, is this whipping up of people in from a policy disagreement. What it's becoming is you're on my sports team or you're not on my sports team. And this is not a productive way to, to advance because, again, I'll, let me separate out the news commentators on this one. But if you bring on guests who say, well, they should have done A, B, and C, and they sold out people's D, E, and F. Issues like immigration, the gender pay gap, um, COVID, criminal justice reform, education reform, cannot be discussed in seven minutes.
0: You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Baleria. We're talking with Dr. Steve Bienname about how to evolve journalistic norms
1: how come the person who's going through the student loans, going through food insecurity, going through how to navigate the various social safety net programs, how come they're not getting five minutes? We're not doing enough stories talking to the people in the system, going through that, right? And so that's when it comes back to this critique of elite theory. We're talking so much to people who set the policy and set the agenda that sometimes the people going through this on a day-to-day basis, and again, I'm not here to bash folks because, as you said, Gina, this is also fewer journalists doing more stories and more work. These are overworked folks. I am not out trying to say that journalists are doing a bad job. This is not the case. Journalists doing a great job, but just like in my job, I think I have to be critiqued. I come with this mentality, and, and so when we're talking about who gets to speak on what issues and we're talking COVID relief. Well, $600 would dissuade folks from working. Well, have you? How many folks have you talked to? Right? $600 means that you've made, if you got this for the you, you made $30,000.
0: And $30,000 is really not a lot of money. When you think of rent, transportation, food and other bills, $30,000 is not going to get you by, especially here in the Bay Area.
1: Sometimes the people who are talking about the effects of the policy or what the policy should be are not in conversation with the people who are living that. And I I think that's something that we can always take into account. Are we getting those who are gonna be living the ramifications of that?
0: So I really appreciate what you're saying and like actually engaging with the community, including the community. I used to work here at KCBS radio in San Francisco. And I remember one story came in where it was about uh, ad blocker. And the lead was, you know, business is very upset because ad blocker is a thing, basically. And so I was, I was teaching part-time at the time. And so I went to my students and I said, hey, curious, does this headline resonate with you? And they're like, Nah, man, we love ad block. What do you mean? We're not upset. Yeah, are they talking to you? No, they're not. And they didn't talk with you and they didn't talk about why ad blocker is something people do like. And anyway, yes, it's expanding beyond the authorities on the matter. And so I really do agree with you. So I want to kind of dive in now to the language because I think you're absolutely right about including voices that we're not including. Um, and I kind of want to draw back to your copy editor days. How did you approach that work? Because it wasn't just, I mean, it was editing for clean copy, But what else were you looking for with regard to this idea of inclusion and this idea of framing and words that were maybe, you know, framing things in a way that we needed to rethink?
1: You did at times the best you could. So what I mean by that is if something was in your purview, uh, being a black man, my parents are immigrants. So if I saw something, I was like, oh, no, 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 we're not doing this. And you would listen to other Folks in the newsrooms who had different experiences, I, I learned early in my career having diversity. And this is not just like not a diversity quota, but a holistic range of experiences, people who are from working class, people who are from different regions, um, sexual orientation, Ability
0: and yeah. And yeah.
1: giving a platform or creating a newsroom environment where folks could speak up and and really uh get you to be educated on things you did not know. Because a lot of folks perceive media mistakes or less than ideal language as people being mean. As you mentioned and, and as uh, supported you on, these are now fewer folks doing more stories. So the mistakes that are made or sometimes the lack of perhaps care to language is not done out of malice, but it's like, dude, you're booking through five stories. You got to go.
0: So true. So how do we deal with this? How do we start to solve that issue?
1: You bring that level of care, but what you want to do now, I I think, is be involved with as many people as possible. So uh, talking to folks like uh, Karen Yin at Conscious Style Guide, I'm on the advisory board there reading through guidance from the the Trans Journalists Association. One of the reasons I do gender research because I was a man in sports and how many practices did I participate in that created an environment that perhaps turned off some readers, but also I could have been more of an ally or perhaps pushed back on coverage, but I didn't know. I think in the environment we're in today, it's how much work can you do to get yourself not up to speed, because you'll never be up to speed. That's why I don't believe in the term wokeness. No one is woke. You are trying to get yourself as educated as you can to as many experiences as possible. And it's a failing task, but it's one you have to do. I appreciate it in a lot of the newsrooms I worked in. And I think for those who work in newsrooms, Empowering your staff to speak up. And also, what pictures were you painting of someone? Read up on things, try to learn as many experiences, but you want to be around folks who consistently challenge your worldview.
0: And also to be curious and question why? Why is it this way?
1: Sometimes we fall into very comfortable spaces where we don't necessarily challenge ourselves. I find this with having an infant child. Going, huh, and being challenged and being uncomfortable is a good thing because you can articulate your beliefs better or you can think about things more thoughtfully.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we're at this moment now where inclusive language is starting to permeate into the journalism industry. We're seeing this with a whole host of stories, you know, the the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests. I mean, it comes from tragic events. We've lost so many lives at the hands of police over the summer, and and of course before, but we've got it on camera now. And we've got this this really fantastic and amazing pushback of how things have been talked about. Not only are journalists examining their own language, but I think their publics are kind of requiring it of them in a lot of senses. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this, the sort of opening up of mainstream journalism to getting more comfortable with the idea of inclusive language and where we still have to go. I think... There's still a lot of clinging to old ways, but at least this is starting.
1: So this is interesting. My dissertation is on the evolution of gender in the AP style book. So journalists have always been trying to do inclusive language. I think what's happening is now this work is very much public. My argument is that it has to hit mainstream acceptance for journalists to wholesale adopt something. Do we make news or do we report news, All right? Are we, are we trying to reflect the public conversation or shape the public conversation? And so this is where that the descriptive versus prescriptive editing paradigms come in. So descriptive, you're reflecting. Prescriptive means you're setting the tone. I teach a lot of workshops with inclusive editing. I am a believer in inclusive editing. And I always start off with inclusive editing and political correctness are not the same. So political correctness means you did something to not get in trouble, but you don't believe in what you're doing, right? You don't know anything of the why. Just like, well, I'm not going to say anything about it because I don't want to get in trouble. Inclusive means you're trying to open yourself to as many folks as possible, right? I liken it to if you're inviting people to your house for dinner and you want to invite the widest range of people, and you know someone has a food allergy, you're like, okay, no nuts here, or no dairy, because we want everyone to feel welcome. That's not a special set-aside. You're like, everyone is going to feel welcome at my table. And inclusive editing is the same way. You want people to view your work, read your work, listen to your work, to feel welcome, to feel as though... Their fullness, their wholeness matters. And so this is a very key difference.
0: That is a great analogy. I want everyone to feel welcome at my table. So how do we extrapolate that to journalism? In particular, the language
1: that we use. So when we're talking about issues about um, changing style with used to be husband and wife, and now it is spouse. Spouse always existed. We're trying to make sure that our language does not erase someone else's life or someone else's livelihood, right? I'm married, my relationship did not get devalued because of spouse, right? So these are conscious things to think about. And a lot of pushback comes from folks who we have to do a lot of work educating our news consumers because they don't understand the why, right? or the so what question, right? We talk about this in, in our intro news writing and in our copy editing classes and even in our advanced writing, right? Tell, you have to explain the why and you have to explain the so what. We say happy holidays because there are, may, there are many holidays we are celebrating in December. We do not want to privilege one holiday over another. We are not saying that your holiday is not acknowledged. We are saying we are trying to acknowledge all holidays. And so what happens is people feel as though their identity is being taken away. What you're trying to do is give more visibility and acceptance to more people's holidays. And so you have to do that work in educating the public Um, because they don't know the why. They just say, oh, it's politically correct. Shouldn't somebody else's day or holidays or days have the same level of respect as your day? When it's framed like that, then folks become like, yeah, how can I say no to that? (laughs) Yeah, why not? Right? You're not advocating an agenda where you're trying to say one thing is better than another. What you're attempting to do is put people on an even platform the country's always been diversifying and has always been a diverse country, but what we're attempting to do with inclusive language, be more respectful of the diversity and bring visibility, transgender people always been here, non-heterosexual people have always been here, right? Multiracial people have always been here. We're just trying to bring visibility to that and have our coverage respect that these people have been here. But what's happening is it's treated as new because people haven't seen it. Just because we haven't come across something or seen something does not mean it did not exist. It's, we never came across it. When you're thinking about inclusivity, you're always thinking about all the things you don't know. And how can I make people feel welcome?
0: So how do you think the journalism industry is doing then? Have we evolved at all over the last few years?
1: To bring things full circle. The language from 2016 has changed dramatically. in Four years. So I wrote a column for Conscious Style Guide about the term uneducated. And I was like, oh, this is really mean. You can't call people that. You know what I've seen now, four years later? Voters without a college degree, which is the correct term. Shockingly, if you become more precise and inclusive with your language, you become less offensive.
0: That's a great example. But I think we have a long way to go. I'm thinking of the polling and the assumptions that were made leading up to the election about women as a block, the black community, Latinos. These are not monolithic blocks of people.
1: When somebody says the women's vote, I'm like, I don't know what that means. The, the Black vote, or the Latino vote, or the Asian American vote, I'm like, I, I, it's a ton of diversity there. It, it's, a, it's a term that has very little meaning outside of, it's a term of some people who share a characteristic, but you didn't figure out like, okay, what matters to these people? What is their story? An inclusive person always wants to know your story. Wants to know the why behind something. Why is that offensive? Why do we have to cap the B in black now? That's an inclusive mindset. That's an inclusive editor. Politically correct person just does it, doesn't ask the question, doesn't want to get to know somebody.
0: Thank you to my guest, Dr. Steve May, Assistant Professor of Journalism at Northern Kentucky University, and Adjunct Instructor at the Pointer Institute. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe. And The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing News in Context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.